Could you answer the next series of questions without blinking your eyes? Yes. Without fear and hesitation, answer as quickly as you can. Sure. Starting now, we are not to blink. If you blink, we go back to the start. Infringement. You blinked. Starting now, we are not to blink. If you blink, we go back to the start. No other love can warm my heart. Not hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Mike, and joining me as always... Hey guys, Brian. And thanks for joining us for this episode of Amateur All Tours. You can follow us on Twitter at All Tours Pod, or you can email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at the Amateur All Tours Podcast at gmail.com. So everyone, welcome to the show. Brian, welcome back. It's it's been a while since I've really, even outside the podcast, just seen you or talked to you uh, with all the all the little bit of crazy events going on currently with uh, coronavirus. But uh, Brian, how, how have you been doing? I know I know off air we were talking a little bit, but just for the listeners, like how, how have you been doing? Hanging out. Um, I mean, we're doing all right over here in uh, Philadelphia. We've just been maintaining quarantine, staying safe, and um, just using this time to, you know, try and make the best of it, do some schoolwork, watch some movies, some TV shows, so just catching up my watch list and just kind of trying to stay, stay healthy and listen to what, you know, people more educated and smarter than me are trying to say to do. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like, or feel, feel that one, Brian. So, but yeah, you mentioned do, when you're done working at home, of course, uh, getting caught up on wh- whatever you have on your list of things to watch. And I've been doing the exact same thing. So I have a list of movies uh, somewhere in my computer. This like what I want to write either brief episodes about, or maybe we can talk about them. But I texted you saying this, hey man, like we need to get together and do some episodes. Like we have, when I when we're not working, we have all this time to sit down and watch because we can't go out and do anything. So for at least for an extended period of time. So let's do some podcasts. We can do this all remotely through Skype, through Zoom. People are doing it. Let's do it. So uh, I asked you just to even get the ball rolling. Brian, Pick a movie. We'll pick whatever you want just to get the ball rolling to, to start recording and, and do these episodes. And what uh, film did you want to talk about, Brian? So I chose uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's, I believe, 2012 film, The Master. And and you've been wanting to talk about this movie for a while, I think. And it was on our docket, like our old docket. When we revised it, it came back. And now here we are. So, Brian, why did you want to talk about this movie in particular? Well, I think, well, first off, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It was, I think, one of my first Paul Thomas Anderson films that I started uh, that was, like, the first film that I saw of his that, like, introduced me to who he was as, like, a person, as a filmmaker, everything like that, which I think is fairly, I think, is a weird jumping-off point for The Master, like, to be that be my first Paul Thomas Anderson film. I think, actually, I take that back. I think it was Punch Drunk Love was my first one. But that the master was second because they were both were on Netflix um, during this period of time when uh, I was a freshman in college, when uh, I just kind of that's when I really jumped into film appreciation and just watching things that I had never seen before. Like that was kind of like the light bulb was on, then it started got they got brighter freshman year of college, and that's when I first started watching like Kurosawa, um, Sergio Leone, more of a deep dive into him. I completely watched all Tarantino's stuff um getting more into like the French new wave with like uh Godard and 
uh, Bresson and everything like that, and then Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, so like the I associate the master and Punch Drunk Love with like this formative like development of like my uh, I guess film appreciation, film taste, culture, whatever uh, whatever you want to call it. And um, it was just something that I always found really special. Um, I think I mentioned before Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of my favorite actors, and this is I I would argue this is one of his best films that he's ever at least like acting performances that he's done and participated in, but um, it's just something that I, it, like, I just, it was one of those things where I didn't understand this movie. And this is kind of like the, the common theme with like newer Paul Thomas Anderson movies where I'm like, I don't understand initially what it's about, but there's just something about the filmmaking, the story, the writing, the dialogue that just like keeps me hooked. And like, it's always kind of, stuck in the back of my mind that I just go back and revisit these kinds of films and just get, uh, I just fully immerse myself in the experience alone. And and that's, and, and, and Paul Thomas Anderson is like one of the only few directors that I can just go into a movie, not necessarily like it the first time, but keep going back. And like, there's like a new layer to peel with, um with each like experience I have with his, his more contemporary films as is like, he's more of a complex filmmaker and, the master was like, I guess like that first experience I had with just in terms of like a movie, I think that I just wanted to go back, peel it back, really examine like different, okay, this time I'll watch how Joaquin Phoenix is. Second time I'll watch how uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is. And then, and then it's like another round will be um, uh, Peggy Dodd, Amy Adams. Like what is she, what is she doing in all this? And then it's like, now watch it another time to just pull it all together and see what happens. And I always, I never get bored with this movie and, even just alone, the testament of the acting, which we can talk about later, is just enough to keep going back and back and keep watching it. So, maybe that was the really long explanation of, I guess, why I chose this movie. Yeah, and Paul Thomas Anderson, so like you mentioned, we've talked about him, at least me and you have talked about him like a, a while ago, a long, long time ago, like way in the beginning of this show with Punch Drunk Love. That was my first introduction I think consciously, at least, to Paul Thomas Anderson. I think my first exposure to him was There Will Be Blood, but that was before I even knew who he was. Like, I, it was more about uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Dano, like, the visuals of that story, and that was before I really was, like, focusing who the director was. That's a good point. Same for me. That was, like, high school. Yeah, that, yeah, way in high school. And then, uh, and then you know, s- slowly being exposed to Paul Thomas Anderson through – so the master was not one of my first exposures to him. It was, it was probably, you know, there will be blood boogie nights, punch drunk love, um, uh, Magnolia. And then this, and then I was like, okay, maybe I can handle inherent vice. And, and, um, and no, I could not at, at the time of this recording, I'm actually, it was because of rewatching the master I am going to try and give Inherent Vice another watch because I've tried to watch it twice, and both times I've fallen asleep. Um, and oh, I don't I know hated, if that was. I hated Inherent Vice when I first saw it, and now I absolutely love it. Uh, how many years later? I guess five years later. Well, and and that's the thing. So we've only talked about Punch Drunk Love, but I've talked about. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, again, way back when Dana Buckler first came on the show. It was just a little bit of a, a, a tidbit of our part of our second part of our conversation where that was a time when Phantom Thread came out. 
his his I guess latest film as of the record as of this recording, and I enjoyed Phantom Thread. I think it's a little bit more of a subdued Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, uh, we're in a new evolution of Paul Thomas Anderson, I think. Yeah, so with, I'm very with Phantom Thread. Yeah, so I'm very curious to see like what comes next. But uh, yeah, so I, I my relationship with him is is definitely admiration because he is definitely one of those filmmakers he's like an enigma like i don't know like just his writing i don't know like how he comes up with this with this especially the master i told you brian uh off air that i was gonna say now so i this is the third time i've seen the master the first time i did not appreciate it i don't think i got it i think i was just being not overstimulated i just didn't know what to think the second time was probably senior year it was actually right before phantom thread came out i'm like i'm gonna go see the master because i've been hearing a lot of comparisons to phantom thread to the master uh i don't really think that's a fair assessment but we'll get into that uh so i rewatched the master going into phantom thread um definitely liked it a little bit more then still kind of dissecting piecing it to get together digesting it but for this i rewatched it last night and i can tell you it was a whole new experience i was totally into the movie i it wasn't a conscious effort to watch the movie i was sitting there and enjoying as the film progressed so yeah i'm very interested to you know talk dissect this movie even further because i was i have my own theory about what the movie's about and but i wanted to get an idea of what critics were thinking or, or what people who analyze film or movie bus what they think and uh there's you it's it kind of reminds me like of uh, Stanley Kubrick in that th- you could take any one of his films and you could pull like, uh, oh, this is what this is about. This is what this is about. Actually, this is what the movie's about. Like you can ask like 10 movie buffs what The Shining's about and you'll more than likely get 10 different answers and or something about Space Odyssey. Like you could watch the ending segment and ask 10 people what happened and you'll get 10 different responses. I very much think that Paul Thomas Anderson in this later half is becoming that type of director. And I think the master is what definitely sparks that, at least for me, like I, you could pull so many different things. So I have my own theory about what the master is about, but we'll definitely get into that as this review goes on. Yeah, no, that, that's, I'm, I'm excited to have that little conversation. So, yeah. Yeah. So Brian, why don't we just talk about uh, the plot real quick? Just generally, what is this movie about? Like just bare bones, not going into the themes, not going into uh, the, the anything else. Uh, just what is this movie about, Brian? Uh, well, basically, Joaquin Phoenix is a traumatized war veteran. Uh, I believe he was in the Navy um, in the Pacific Theater. Um, he comes home. He's obviously like a shell of a person, a fucked up person, kind of just longing for some sort of anything. I guess a, a purpose, a cause. He's just kind of wandering around. Um, and then... He comes across uh, Lancaster Dodd, the master, just kind of sort of by accident. And then we're really took into this. The whole whole movie is about this dynamic, the dichotomy between Lancaster Dodd and um, Freddie Quell. And we can we'll save that examination, that analysis for the themes. But the, the, the story keeps going on. It's just this constant interplay between these two guys. And I guess just like who will break first, what, what, what are their true, I guess, purposes, motivations, Lancaster Dodd is, he essentially runs a cult, 
uh, based off of, I guess he's like this, the direct parallel of L. L. Ron Hubbard for Scientology, and it's just them going across the, uh, the United States, not across the United States, but I think they go to Philadelphia, actually, um, in one scene, and then they go back to the West Coast, and it's just, uh, you don't know, it's very, the film is ambiguous, I don't, fairly ambiguous, but I'm pretty sure it's definitive on whether or not, like, um, Lancaster Dodd's theory, air quote, is bullshit or not, and uh, I guess it, to go, because I'm trying not to, like, talk about the themes here, but I guess to just take all that and boil it down, it's, this is literally just about the, the interplay between two, I guess, magnanimous forces. I don't know if magnanimous is the right word, but uh, larger-than-life figures just kind of playing off of each other. Yeah, and so I guess we can kind of get into it. Um, and, and, and one thing about, you mentioned that Freddie Quill, Joaquin Phoenix's character, um, he is a very, I guess, unstable person to begin with. He's, he's, he's very clearly PTSD, uh, but there's this particular, it's this really, there's two things that, you, that you're told right off the bat, is that he is very, I guess, sexually preoccupied, and that is a theme that is continues throughout the entire film, uh, as well as he's an alcoholic. And that is another really important driving factor of his character is that he is an alcoholic. And and is he repressing things? Is he is this his way of coping? Uh, so I think those are really two important instances or thing or character traits about him that we have to acknowledge, especially going into like the themes and and the uh, and the uh, I guess symbolism or whatever what the whole film means. But before we get into that, I want to talk about the acting. And I feel like with Paul Thomas Anderson, like he is an actor's director. We, we, it's, it's not, it's, when you go into a Paul Thomas Anderson film, you're expecting, it's like Tarantino. You're expecting top quality performances from the best actors of the business, whoever's in the film. And, 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 I, and this was actually one of the theories that I was reading that critics were coming across about what is this movie about. And, and a few people subscribe to the idea that th- this movie is pretty um, – it's about nothing. It's about – which I, I disagree with. Yeah, uh, I but it's, that But it's about it's, – it's just – it's solely a platform for these main two actors, but all the actors just to – really give it their all and and it's representing like american society and and like post-war uh 1950s era uh i guess cultural ideas of the time like with what freddie quill represents versus what um uh philip seymour hoffman's character represents as well so uh but let's talk about these acting like uh, brian you said philip seymour hoffman is if, is one of your favorite actors, and this is probably, would you say this is his, his best film? I mean, I haven't seen his complete, uh, I guess, ever, I haven't seen any everything that he's in, but, I mean, this is definitely a standout role for him. Or, no, I, every role he's in is a standout role for him, but in terms of, like, he just really elevates the screen and everything he does, but this is, like, when I watch this film, this I think this is his best movie, like, best role. Yeah, he just, I, he, just I, he just eats everything up, and he just even just like the interplay with him and Joaquin Phoenix is just like insane. Like they just complement each other in literally every single way. It's literally like a puzzle piece coming together for the like the duo. Yeah, and he's just this 
this such as this charismatic enigma of the film like every time he's on screen he is eating the scenery he's just he is crushing it which then you're like oh well how is Joaquin Phoenix supposed to play against this if he if Philip Seymour Hoffman is just killing it and Joaquin Phoenix steps up to the plate and crushes it and they both add different components to the film I think so but yeah Philip Seymour Hoffman is just it's it's this is one of those performances that you watch and you don't I personally don't see Philip Seymour Hoffman I see the character that he is portraying and and the same goes for Joaquin Phoenix Um, and, and, and that I think is a testament to when these two faces are so recognizable in I guess cinema and the in film because we've seen a lot we've seen a lot of their work and I feel like there's a point like Tom Hanks is one of these actors that like it's not that he's not a good actor he's just so recognizable that I'm like oh that's Tom Hanks and and that should be applying here with Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman but they're just so immersed in their roles and the direction is so on point and their performances I don't see the actor I see the character Oh yeah, no, definitely. I agree with you on that one. Um, it's just, it, it, they really do transform into those roles and that, and I think that's also just a testament to the storytelling that like, you can, you can just, you're totally in, you're all in uh, with the story and that there's nothing comes in from the outside world perspective to like influence how you see this movie. It's just still like just bang up jobs by the whole cast. And I know like we're really talking about Philip Seymour Hoffman and like Joaquin Phoenix is amazing too. Um, but also like Amy Adams, uh, Rami Malek makes a little short appearance in it. Um, man, there's a lot of people in this movie, but I just like Laura Dern does pretty good in it. Oh yeah, Laura Dern five, her, her five minutes. Um, but even just like the background characters do very well, um, and it really is a testament to Paul Thomas Anderson knowing how to work people. And that's another thing that I really appreciate about him is like my only real exposure to um, seeing how he deals with actors is um, watching that Magnolia documentary. Um, have you seen it? I have not. I was about to say, what Magnolia documentary? Where just is go this? on YouTube. Go on YouTube and just type in Magnolia documentary. It's like an hour and it's like two hour long documentary about like, the, the, basically like it starts at pre-production, um, then during production and then like a little bit of post. And it's just literally just Paul Thomas Anderson just like writing the script, um, talking about what they want to do with the movie. He like, he, it, there's a lot of like stuff like him uh, auditioning like the the game show with uh, Stanley, and it's just like it, it, I mean he's like talking to Philip Seymour Hoffman on set, also the old guy who plays Tom Cruise's father. Like there's like just intimate moments of like him like directing this guy, um, and it, it just it, it it really shows that like he's like a really personable person who who knows like the material that he wrote and like it's it, it just like it's just like perfection like he demands perfection but he's like not a dick about it and he can be but he the point of this little anecdote is that he he knows how to work these actors according to the parameters of the story and like really just kind of like ebb out the best performance possible um and and that and that ties into even like the background characters do great in this film yeah, and, and that goes into, like, I was actually going to mention Amy Adams as well, because she is one of those, like, the nuance of his writing and the nuance of her character. Uh, just And this goes into the themes as well, just, like, the power struggle or the power dynamic that she has over uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character 
and in turn the whole movement that he's created and just the the small details in the in the writing and and how she interacts and and you know like the the moment when um after you know Philip Seymour Hoffman has this this big dance or this big singing number in Laura Dern's house and she goes into his room and jerks him off to kind of be like hey I'm actually like remember who who has the power here and it's like everything that goes on behind closed doors behind the curtain and then she goes downstairs to talk to Freddie and just be like stop boozing you know if you're gonna be here you're gonna stop boozing and then I think one of the best moments for her or it just not not actually I take that back not so much for her but just one of those visual storytelling is when they're having uh they're conditioning okay. Freddie Quill and she says okay what am I what color are my eyes they're green all right make them blue and then the next scene she says all right make them black and I'm like ooh, that's like a really interesting detail and then her eyes turn black and that's an interesting character development with Freddie but I also think that's kind of telling of her character like is she really this this person that's black inside is she kind of like this not not demon like character but is she evil like is she is she the villain of this like and it's i think that's a really interesting conversation to have so yeah i think the acting obviously superb but it's one of the give those few accolades and those brief mentions so uh unless there's anything else that you want you want to mention and tack on to that we can get into the themes because i feel like anything you might have to tack on will just relate to the themes yeah no definitely so um, Ryan, what do you think the master is about uh i i think it's about purely nothing like existential or anything i think it's just purely about what happens when an immovable object meets an immeasurable force so in this way uh freddy is the immovable object and lancaster dodd is the immeasurable force and what happens when the rock that doesn't move in the in the middle of the ocean gets berated and berated with uh by by the tide, by the storm, you know, like I'm getting a little metaphorical, but that's essentially what I think the story is about. And and, and that's why I kept saying like who breaks first, what happens, blah blah blah. Well, um, you know, eventually, you know, the tide can overtake the rock. Uh, you know, you might not even see the rock anymore, but at the end of the day the rock is still there and the tide eventually has to recede. And at the end of the day the rock is still there. Um so I think that's what the movie is about. It's just simple as these two characters uh going at it not even going at it in like a like a um like a hostile way or um what's the word i'm thinking of um like and there's nothing nefarious about the interaction i think it's just it's simply that lancaster died and actually in the middle of the movie in the um when at the wedding on the boat and lancaster died as like that monologue where it's like oh imagine there's a dragon and it's screaming fire it's really destructive what do we do with it? I get a lasso. I uh, I wrap it around. I wrestle with it. And then, you know, at the end of the day, I tell it to roll over and, you know, go to sleep. And and then later on in the movie, they start wrestling. Uh, like, I think, it, again, it's just like these, again, these two gargantuan forces, toward the forces, what happens when they meet, you know? Yeah. And so going off that, um, is the, is the essence that, Freddie Quill cannot change since he is the rock. Yeah, no, I think so because I think that's what the ending scene means as well. That like they're both touched, and, and, and it, 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 it's more multifaceted than just like, oh, well, can he change? Can he not change? Because it's very obvious at the end of the movie, like 
he's a different he is kind of a different person than when we when we started he's a much more i think i think the, the like he i think he lets he tries to go after that girl that he left behind um that final exchange with the master and um freddie it's like a very heartfelt touching moment but at the end of the day like freddie is his own man and he's not he didn't buy into lancaster dodd's bullshit um and and it, i think it ties into though that like it really didn't matter when he starts using lancaster dodd's little mind trickery the the processing yeah yeah he did the processing on this poor woman you know so i think it shows that like he's still up to his old tricks but now he's just using what the he did the manipulator the manipulated is using the manipulator's tricks now you know it's interesting i I didn't really think about the ending in that sense that now he is like the the student has become the master um it's and this is why I love like Paul Thomas Anderson because my I think your theory is a factor in mine or like in my how I am internalizing this movie. So what I think the movie is about is essentially uh, just being a prisoner to like relationships or, or like I, I don't think that I'm explaining it super well, but essentially it's the idea that you know Freddie Quill the whole movie he is obsessed with this idea of Doris that he said, I'll come back for you. I'm going to pledge myself to you. And, and then he runs away. And I, I, and this is, so he was in, I guess he was in world war two as a sailor and he was getting letters from a, an underage teenager who he was infatuated with. And so this is where I think the sexual frustration starts to come out and the fact that he is like already a mentally disturbed person because he was having um, relation, like sexual relationships with his aunt. His mom is institutionalized. And uh, I forget what, what happened with his father. But, um, but anyway, like the point is that he comes from a broken home. He's already predisposed to having these mental breaks and these mental uh, issues. And then he's out at sea, sees, I'm assuming he has, like, he's seen horrors of the war. You never really know if he's lying, because at one point he says he's killed Japanese, but, and then he directly, right after, this is all in the processing scene, that this, the best scene of the movie, in my opinion, when we learn all these intimate details about uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character. And so he says, oh, I, I killed I killed Japs in the war. And then the next question is, are you a liar? And he says, yes. So he's an unreliable narrator. But anyway, back to the original point, he's, he's like, uh, these, these sexual frustrations are coming out because Doris is underage. And even Freddie Quill has some sort of moral compass that he at least adheres to. So he's, he is sexually preoccupied, but he's not going to have sex with a minor. So then he runs away after pledging himself to her. He goes out, runs away, goes out on these ships starts having these uh i guess these these ideas these these fascinations with sex and whatever so he starts to repress it with drinking with apparently that i i knew about so he drinks he starts making his own concoction that he calls moonshine and and it's essentially literally anything that he can find that has any sort of ethanol or alcohol in it uh most notably in the Navy, he was making the torpedo juice, which I think that's what it was called. 
uh, the torpedoes were a little history lesson. They were, um, he wasn't drinking motor oil. They were, um, what's the word? They were propelled using ethanol. So you could like sailors would drink it. So they yeah, actually yeah. had to do that stuff. So he would drink it out on the ships. He would come back, became, uh, you know, running just further running away. And he would just mix literally anything and drink anything to start suppressing these. He's in the department store. He seduces one of those sales, uh, like models. And then he's about to have sex with her. And then he says, well, how about we go on a date? And then he gets drunk. He gets, he passes out. So he can't have sex. He avoids the situation altogether. And then he has an angry outburst, further distancing himself from that. And then, uh, you know, he goes to San Francisco in the in the um, in the uh, like lettuce patches, almost kills another man. Uh, but and I think this starts to the whole idea of like one day maybe he'll be his own not cult leader, but the manipulator where he says. He took the drink on himself. I didn't poison him. I think that's a very interesting line that is said. Uh, and like, you know, you think of these cult leaders, like, don't drink the, like, they're, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. It's like, well, they, I, they took the drink themselves. I didn't poison them. I think that's a really yeah. interesting motif that Freddie says, and then he runs away from that problem. I mean, they're about to fucking beat him up. And then he stumbles onto Lancaster Dodd. And this is when, you know, we have these two forces meet. He's at this point, he's very aimless. He has nothing. He's, He's repressing those feelings that he's had for Doris. He's having that internal struggle of like, I want to have sex. I want to do all this stuff, but I promised myself to her and I don't know how to handle it. So then Lancaster Dodd gives him this sense of, uh, I guess, sense of purpose. And I feel like Lancaster Dodd, when you, and then you mentioned in the, in the wedding, the whole dragon metaphor, where it's very obvious that, this whole idea is Lancaster Dodd is the the dragon wrangler and Freddie is the, the dragon. And I think it's interesting because like, oh, now he's got a leash on him. And tomorrow we're going to teach him how to roll over and play dead. So he's, he's showcasing this is I'm going to train Freddie like a pet. But then Freddie becomes rebellious. And I just feel like there's this there's this internal idea of Lancaster Dodd is just fascinated with this creature that he can't contain always call when when freddie has his outburst he says oh you're just an animal you're just an animal you have to repress those animalistic feelings um and then but anyway going back i'm, I'm kind of all over the place but I'm just tr trying to put context to what i'm saying so then throughout the whole movie lancaster dodd is trying to break freddie of this relationship with with doris I, that was her name right yeah yeah so he's trying to break it whether it's through like operant conditioning uh, processing, trying to manipulate him until our final moments when we um, when we have him on the salt bed with the motorcycle. One of the most visually, like I think one of the greatest visuals of the movie, like, okay, Freddie, pick a line out on the horizon and ride and don't come back until you get there. And then Freddie takes off. He goes to try and see Doris. We find out Doris has moved on, has gone and married and i feel like that is the moment when freddie is finally free of this i don't want to say curse but this idea that he belongs to doris and that is why he could never be lancaster dodds because he already belonged to someone else he he was a, in his mind he was a slave to doris or maybe not a slave but he belonged to her he was her property and he could never be fully committed to lancaster dodd and then but 
as the time when he breaks off that connection with Doris, he's his own man. And then the end of the film, I'll get your opinion of if the meeting actually occurred, but he goes back and meets up with Lancaster and he says, come with me. I'll give you this ultimatum though. You can either come with me, devote yourself to me, or essentially you can fuck off and we'll never, we'll never interact ever again. And Freddie, yeah, he's like, we'll be, we'll be like mortal enemies or something in the next life or something. Yeah. And he disap- and then he disappears. And then this is when he goes to the bar and starts using those, uh, like the processing techniques on this random woman he met in a bar. But it's the first time that he can fulfill his sexual fantasy. Uh, it's the first time he actually is his own person. And yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's that we're watching that dynamic of this man who is having this internal struggle of he belongs to someone. Someone else is trying to make him make, make Freddie his, uh, his own rebels against that. And then through that process, Freddie becomes his own person. Hopefully that made sense. I feel like I was going on tangents, but I was trying to add context to it. But what do you think of that, Brian? No, I I mean, I think that's the cool thing about this movie is that, like, everybody's interpretation can be what it is, and I don't think, yeah, I mean, it sounded legit to me. I mean, I think what I think what it is about, what I said, I think what the movie's about, but also, like, you, your, your theories also ring true as well, too. Like, that is a very valid interpretation, so, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so, and that's, that's what I definitely really like this, this film, because there's just so much depth to it, so... Uh, and one one more thing that I have on my plate. I mean, is there any anything more you wanted to hit on the themes or anything like that? Um, I don't think so. I think that's everything I had to say. So the last point that I have is just like the cinematography of the film, because this film is so beautiful. It's beautifully shot, every frame of painting, essentially. Like this could be one of those oh, categories. Yeah. Um, it was shot like, on seventy millimeter. Yeah, this was one of the f- one. Not I want to say the first film, but it was one of the because Paul Thomas Anderson loves shooting on 70 millimeter. I think he helped, I don't want to say a resurgence, but I feel like Tarantino had taken a look at, at this and was said, okay, that's what I want to do for my roadshow with the hateful eight. And that, because 70 millimeter is essentially the HD version of film. So I can only imagine what this looked like on like an IMAX theater on 70 millimeter. Cause this film is absolutely gorgeous in every sense of the word. Oh no, it's it's really well shot. It's it's yeah. That was another thing that really struck me was just like even like from the get go, like that first shot is awesome of like the water, like it just that, for whatever reason like I think that's also why it stuck with me because it's just like whoa, that's a really well that's that's a really cool shot. But it, I mean, it's weird because like I feel like seventy millimeter is is used for stuff like that water shot but like the rest of it are just two guys talking to each other in a room you know what i mean that's like half the movie so it's it's interesting that he he chose that format but like didn't he utilized it i guess for for the presentation of it and it really and like his cinematography is awesome but it's it's funny that it's like usually they're used for like epic grand like grand scale pieces that's kind of what the same criticisms kind of came from tarantino for the hateful eight it's just like oh you use this like really amazing format uh just for like people talking in a in a single room you know what i mean but mm-hmm. but it's still really well shot and it's an, and it's really interesting that he used 70 millimeter so and that's the thing i want to say about like paul tom sanderson that i've noticed from my own watching now i haven't seen i haven't seen heart eight 
and I think that's it. Oh, and inherent vice. Um, but to me, it seems like, especially when it's, you want to take uh, like something like cigarettes and coffee and then punch drunk love magnolia or um uh like phantom thread and i think the master is in is in there as well he's becoming a more like you're seeing the evolution of paul thomas anderson he's becoming a more subdued older i mean older director more mature filmmaker because you have all these very interesting camera movements in something like uh um magnolia or like just take the whole opening segment of magnolia with the whole coincidence monologue you know you have these it's very edited very quickly lots of uh like zoom ins pan out or pans out um dolly shots camera shot or uh, uh crane shots but then you come to this film and there's not a lot of that it's a lot of uh i guess what is it tri- i don't want to say tripod shots but you only get like the most i guess advanced technique that you get is um is a pan and that's it and you can do that on a trolley or um, a trolley a tripod so i i think the cinematography is very like this is when we're starting to see that in 2012 he's starting to take that and i guess it was a little bit in there will be blood but it's especially here that we're starting to see the the next evolution of paul thomas anderson the more matured I don't want to say restrained because his maybe he's focusing more on the scripts. I don't know. What do you think about that, Brian? Like that that uh, assertion that he's a little bit more grounded in his camera work, but his scripts are just being becoming more and more elevated. Um, I think yeah. Well, it's definitely like a shift from his like coked out, high octane, like twenty million characters, like uh, his like Robert Altman esque movies where they were like. Uh, like Boogie Nights or Magnolia, where it, and you'll see this in the uh, in the Magnolia documentary. There are times where he's like directing people, walks away, very clearly sniffs coke, and then just runs back on like on set. Um, I think it really highlights like how much of just like an adult he is. Like he's not a kid anymore directing like these flashy movies. It, they're very like intimate, like character studies of people, um, and I think. It, and I think that's what's really interesting about him as a filmmaker, because, like, he doesn't make the same movie, like, twice. There's always something new that he'll, like, do um, and push the envelope. And I and I feel like, and I boil it down to, like, every every filmmaker worth his salt has, like, an evolution. Even, like, like Tarantino has it, Von Trier has it, Kubrick has it, like, everybody has it. Where it's like, all right, like, so you have Hard Eight. Part eight is like it was like his first like indie phase, and then you had Boogie Nights, Magnolia. Then you had Punch Drunk Love as its own like, and those music videos he did uh, for a few other people for um Fiona Apple when he was dating her. Like that's its own thing. And then you have There Will Be Blood in the Master, and then you have Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread. Like they're just different elements and phases to like his storytelling, where it's like they just get more and more complex, not so much convoluted. Not, and not even – I would never say he was convoluted, but, like, it was just, like, so – I'm trying to – I can't find – I can't think of the right word to describe, like, what Magnolia was and how it's different to the master. Or I guess it's just more, like – it's not intellectual because that's just, like, that's a little douchey. But, like, it's more – honestly – and it's not intimate because they're both very intimate stories. But uh, I don't know. Like – 
can't think of the word, but there's whatever that word is, it, it, it demonstrates that there's a difference in his storytelling. And even just like the way he, he's not so quick to like do like whip pans like he did in Boogie Nights or Magnolia. Um, it's more just like, here's the static shot. We're just going to put the camera in front of these guys. And we're, you're going to watch these people. I'm going to linger on them. And you're going to watch them, how they act, how they react to what's going on around them. And it's, it's a much more like, I guess, you know what? I think it's more mature. It's a more mature style of storytelling um, that accentuates like his later work. That's why I really appreciate it. He is growing with his craft. He's not making the same shit he made, you know, 10 years ago, let alone even five years ago. Um, so I think that's just really a testament to his filmmaking. No, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And like, I think, my favorite fi- um, scene of the film, what I was mentioning throughout this review, or this discussion, I should say, I feel like this is more of a discussion than a review, is is the processing scene. When it's as simple as reverse, rever- uh, reverse shot, reverse shot angle of just our two leads, and they're just talking back and forth. And this is where the cinematography, it's so simple yet so effective. You don't need this flashy shit to, because it would be distracting and it would take away from the scene. And I think him being a more mature filmmaker recognizes that. And we only need those two, we only need those two shots and we just got to rely on the actors to give that scene and just the power struggle and, and just the inner workings of both the characters' minds. And, 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 and I just love the, that entire scene of just Philip Seymour Hoffman, Lancaster Dodd, just slowly ebbing away and manipulating Freddie Quill and, and 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 just with the two processing i guess recordings and yeah no i just and that i think just encapsulates what's amazing like what's great about this movie uh in that it makes you think and it's all about the nuances of the of the film like in the processing scene if you blink we we will restart and then halfway through Joaquin Phoenix just starts blinking because but but there's no infringement called because Philip Seymour Hoffman Lancaster Dodd knows I have him right where I want him. He can blink as much as he wants, but I have him opening up. And I think that's just a smart script, smart storytelling, and just very effective use of simplistic cinematography. And, 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 and but then there's the lighting, there's the, there's the, the, the depth of field, there's just the, the tripod. There's so much going on with every single scene of the film. And I always love it. And also just the use of soundtrack, whether it be, uh, the characters singing themselves or we have uh, songs of the era, everything just meshes and blends so super well together that that's why I think, and maybe I'm becoming a more mature, I'm not going to say I'm maturing. I'm, I'm just, I'm getting more perspective as I'm getting older with the movies that I watch and why things are, why directors are doing the things that they do, why screenwriters write in the way that they do, why actors in films like this are acting that the way that they are. And I think it's making me appreciate films like this even more. So yeah, no, this was definitely a very, uh, a great topic for us to discuss, Brian. No, oh, yeah, definitely. And that's also something I forgot I didn't mention until now, the music by Johnny Greenwood. I love it. I have it on vinyl, and I think it's 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 one it's, it's really well written music, and it really just suits. It fits the tone. I don't know why. It just it it works. It works on all cylinders for me. Did he come back for Phantom Thread? Yes. Because I I think I enjoyed the Phantom Thread track 
more than this, but that's not to say like this, 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 the soundtrack is just so enticing and really just sets you in the scene for everything going on. No, yeah, definitely. But that's just, that's a quick thing. We don't have to get, I don't, I, that's kind of all I have to say on the music that it's awesome as well. And it should be. All right. Well, I guess with that being said, I mean, we can get into our closing thoughts and final recommendations. So Brian, since it's your pick, why don't you go first? Yeah, I guess, I think, me personally, I think this is Paul Thomas Anderson's best film. Um, and it's my favorite of his as well. And I mean, There Will Be Blood was pretty awesome too. I, I think it's a tie though. I think There Will Be Blood was like his, obviously his most critically successful and praised, but I just think The Master is a much better, not a much better film, but it's it's still a very, it's a great film. And I mean, I think just think everything, there's not a weak link in this movie. And I think it's definitely a movie though that like it warrants and I'll say this for pretty much every Paul Thomas Anderson movie, like multiple rewatchings just to understand, I guess, the themes, to the really appreciate the concepts. It, it, it's definitely something that, like, should be revisited and examined um, intimately and closely. Um, yeah, like I said at the beginning of this review, it's one of my favorite films ever. Um, you know, it's of that top five interchangeable list. Um, and, no, I just think it's something that everybody should see, even if you're not ready for it or even just even if you don't want to watch it I think this is something that everybody should watch um and and usually the way I end it is you know what I recommend this to my girlfriend it's actually on my list to show her I have like a long list of movies hopefully that we can start checking off stuff during this quarantine um but you know that that's on the list as well so to answer that question yes I would recommend this to my girlfriend and I keep changing up is it is it five or ten stars it's ten Okay, so out of ten, I would give it a um. Hmm, I guess personally, I would give it a nine. Oh wow! Okay, high ranking. I really yeah, like this that's movie. That's a that's a very high ranking remark. So yeah, I mean, I would echo a lot of everything you said. I think this is a film that maybe not if you're being like if if I was introducing someone that like Paul Thomas Anderson probably would not start with the master. <laughs> I, I wouldn't start with that either. But but um, I think this is a type of film and this is a this is a film that people should see especially film lovers film buffs like cinephiles have to see this movie i think paul thomas like i think paul thomas anderson's just film collection is something that all film lovers should see or cinephiles should see but the master is definitely on there um and the, and the ranking of this, I, I used to not like, when I first saw this movie, I didn't like it initially, but now it's awesome. I, I, I can appreciate it and appreciate everything that is going for it. And so, yeah, I definitely really enjoyed the movie. This was probably my, my most favorite, I guess, viewing experience of the film. So yeah, I, I highly recommend this film. This is a great film. And I'm going to give this a, a 7.5 out of 10. Uh, I, I'm I'm trying to be a little bit more, I guess, not harder on my reviews, but I feel like I, I in in reflection of the show, I've been giving a lot of like eights or eight and a halfs or like you know things like or seven and a halfs, and that kind of dilutes what the rating is. So I think this is a very great movie. I think a seven point five 
is a, is a fair rating for what this is. Uh, I, I, I highly recommend the film. I think people should see it. So so a 9 from Brian and a 7.5 from Mike. Uh, everyone, it, it is available on Netflix. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm sure you can rent it on every streaming platform, whatever, but I would highly recommend that you guys go see this movie. Yep, no, definitely. Uh, yeah, and I think that's all we got. Yeah, so that concludes this episode of Amateur World Tours. Uh, everyone, thanks again for listening. It's always great to have you guys participate and just be a part of the conversation. So once again, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at AllToursPod. You can email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at theamateuraltourspodcast at gmail.com. If you could, it'd be really awesome if you could leave a rating, review, whatever listening platform you listen to the show on. And yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, I'll, Brian, I'll talk to you later. And everyone, see you later. Thank you.